Welcome to the Tea with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Donna DeGenero. Donna obtained her PhD in educational leadership from the University of Pennsylvania. Her passion for creating socially just learning designs that are technology mediated and youth driven fueled her work with youth in in informal learning environments in the U.S. and abroad for the past 10 years. During this time, she developed an innovative pedagogical model that simultaneously addresses the digital divide, cultural learning, responsive learning, and social justice education. After being perpetually inspired by the ways that her pedagogical model not only unleashes youth voice and agency, but also opens spaces for young people to envision and create their own futures, she is motivated to start Unlocking Silent Histories, a nonprofit that sparks the potential of Indigenous youth to critically analyze how they are represented in the media and creatively express their worlds through documentary filmmaking. Good morning. (laughs) Good morning. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you join me, especially with what month it is. It's November 7th when we're recording this. Um, and with it being a month to honor Indigenous folks, I feel like this is a perfect conversation to be having right now about your nonprofit. Donna lives here in Austin, which I always love to meet a fellow Austinite. Um, and we got connected via her sister who follows me on Instagram. So it's our first time meeting, which I also always love. I'm like, we're just going to have a convo <laughs> and see where it goes. Um, but yeah, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about Unlocking Silent Histories, um, the importance of Indigenous History Month, um, all those sorts of things that led us to having a conversation today. Sure, sure. It's nice to meet you and thanks for having me. Um, you know, I think in honor of Native American Month, Indigenous Month of November, um, I'd really like to start by reading University of Austin, the University of Texas at Austin's land acknowledgement. Um, so we acknowledge that our school sits on Indigenous land. The Tonkawa lived in Central Texas and the Comanche and Apache moved through this area. Today's various indigenous peoples from all over the world visit Austin and or call it home. We are grateful to be able to study and learn on this piece of Turtle Island. And then they have a nice link on their website that takes you to illustrating how you can find out about whose land you um, have the privilege of of borrowing and being on in um, in, in this world that we live in today, so. Um, 
So, and, and, you know, sort of in that spirit, I have to um, acknowledge too that I do not claim any indigenous heritage or affiliation. And what got me started in Unlocking Silent Histories was, um, oh, in 20, 20, between 2010 and 2012, I was a university professor at the University of Boston, Mass University of Massachusetts in Boston. And I was working a lot with youth in Dorchester area and previously in Patterson and previously in Philadelphia and just learning a lot about how technology made visible what kids know. So we technically typically go into these communities with this deficit mindset, this mindset that these kids aren't bringing knowledge to our schools and we have to assimilate them and we have to um, move them into our world. And I was just so inspired by what kids knew and was trying to sort of move that conversation in schools of education. And they really just weren't, weren't having it. We had to follow the federal guidelines and we had to follow the federal mandates. And um, it caused a conflict between, you know, sort of my trajectory and agenda for for my research and where the university's education school was going. And it was, you know, sort of writing on the wall, I wasn't gonna get tenure. So I decided to take a break and cut my, my, uh, my ties from the university for a few years. And I went to live in Guatemala. Um, and I was uh, introduced by an organization called My Traditions Foundation to uh, communities in the highlands regions of Guatemala. And for, kids started working with me, Carmen, Emilio, um, Fabiola, and Catalina, and started helping me shape this idea of what this learning environment would look like that really came from the communities and came from the voices of youth. Um, and in the process of interviewing people, so what I what we do in Unlocking Silent Histories is we give video cameras to kids and they pick any topics that they want to choose to investigate or to tell the world more about. And um, they're video ethnographies. So they you know, pick a topic, develop interview questions, go into the field um, and, and interview their elders and their peers. And what happened in the process is interviewing their elders is everyone spoke in their traditional indigenous languages. And so, um, and in that area it's K'iche'. And so when they came back and started to translate from indigenous language to Spanish, and then from us from Spanish to English, they started to realize the, the value of the language as an inherent part of their culture and really were more deeply connected to this commitment to keeping their language and understanding that that was sort of the heart of their culture. And I think it was, you know, sort of that moment that Unlocking Silent Histories became about indigenous voices, knowledge and um, revitalization. So it started out as an education project and then um, and then ended up being something a little bit more. I love that. And I have so many things I want to talk about. OK, <laughs> so I guess the first thing is like, as you as you stated, you have no historical tie to indigenous and native um, lineage yourself. But I guess like a lot of people often ask like why you as a, I'm assuming white woman um, felt the need to kind of go into that space and help create space for those folks. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's kind of a lot of reasons. And so, um, uh, 
Yeah, we'll 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 just go with that. <laughs> so um, so there's a lot of reasons. There's um, when I was a a young person and trying to be successful in school, I had a lot of trouble reading and I thought differently. I have a very nonlinear mind and I didn't really fit the mold. And so I think um, when I got introduced to how technology sort of opened this world for people to express themselves, I got really excited about that. And then as I was doing work in Philadelphia and Patterson, New Jersey and in Dorchester, and then eventually the Dominican Republic too, it just, it just took me in that direction. Um, and so I think what for me, I, I mean, I, I love this question because I love people to challenge me about this is that um, we have this thing in academia called critical consciousness. And so it's really, and critical reflexivity. And it's really about taking pause and, and checking yourself and your biases and your realities. And so it has been a growth opportunity for me to not enter research as the all-knowing researcher but I've really moved my researcher to the sort of stepping back and moving um, moving to a place of respect, um, listen and, um, and, and let them lead. And so I think that, uh, you know, I don't know why, why me exactly, <laughs> but I think I have the, um, the desire to understand and learn from different perspectives to create spaces for kids to be able to express themselves in the ways that are authentic to them. And also, um, yeah, just getting increasingly passionate about the mindset, the, the values and the, uh, what, what these communities have to teach us that continues to keep me in that space and in that conversation. I love that. Yeah. I, I only ask because I have worked in nonprofit spaces for so much. And I always tell people that I come from a very privileged background. And so folks will always ask me like, what led you to this work? And I always say like, I knew, or I still know that my life would have looked a lot different if I didn't have people who sort of rallied around me. And so I know like for me, I'm always trying to pay it forward, but then also listen to the folks that I'm helping. Um, and I always go back to the work I did with folks who are experiencing homelessness. Like that's something I've never experienced, but I was able to, like you're saying, let them lead. I was able to go in and be like, I'm not where you are, but I'm willing to listen and learn and help you, you know, find that voice for yourself and not speak on your behalf. So I really admire the work that y'all are doing, especially giving kids and young adults just such freedom with technology. I I worked at a youth organization and just being able to listen to the young people of today, I say, as I'm 31 years old, um, <laughs> just really getting to, to see what they create and what they talk about and how they're just doing things even so differently from when I was raised, right? Like there's just so much more freedom and representation and them being able to find their, like I said, their own voice and, and own reality in a world that is, I think, trying to constantly say, you're a child, you don't know what you're talking about, um, but realizing that they are actually paying very close attention and wanting things to change rapidly as well. 
Yeah. And I'm really glad that you said that about just you finding their voice because a lot of, a lot of nonprofit work is quote unquote empowerment work. Right. And we always sort of struggle and push back on that word empowerment because it assumes that these communities and these kids don't have power and they do. It's the opportunity and the ways that we structure spaces that don't, don't reveal that. So. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really loved the piece about representation and that sort of the tie with language and culture. And, you know, I think for so long, the only representation we saw of Native folks, Indigenous folks were, you know, the things we see of them being the sort of agitator in all of these old movies and TV shows. And so I would love to know more about like what you have seen and some of the the work and and documentary work that the youth have been able to do to kind of like you're saying keep that cultural tie and connection and and create their own version representation. Yeah, I think that one's a struggle a lot of times. So we got we get volunteer filmmakers and we get people who um, you know who have an idea or don't necessarily aren't necessarily thinking about entering spaces in a different way. Mm. So um, so one of the things I think we come across first is the kids always say, well, what do I do next? Mm. And instead of saying, well, 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 here's what you do next. I say, I don't know. What do you think we should do next? <laughs> you know, what do you read in the interviews and what do you read in um, that's, that you still need to ask and still need to tell? And so I really enter with asking more questions than providing guidance and, um, and so that representation then also becomes their, they, they increasingly see that their freedom to do the representation. Um, and when they have that, I think one of the things that I see the most is just this, uh, you know, sort of authentic, um, uh, just, just, uh, you know, represent, I hate to say the, the word representation again, but, you know, th these, uh, authentic stories that are coming immediately from, from the earth. So for example, you know, one of the, the three of the kids just worked on a, a, a film about an organic garden. And so the organic garden is built into the mountainside of the Andean terraces that um, we're holding up and part of the ruins. Um, and so without even understanding that he's, he's showing that integration of, of earth to, to human, um, he's showing that within the ways that he organizes his garden. Um, there was another, uh, one of the kids who just did Dia de los Muertes, uh, Muertos, so she did actually the, the dead. She didn't actually do Day of the Dead. Um, and just the, you can hear the ways in which reciprocity, which they call Aini in Peru, because I'm currently working in Peru, so Aini is this give and take, this, this balance that everything is in harmony. And so those conversations, again, sort of push through those representations, those values, those, those knowledge systems that we've kind of pushed to the side and, and don't necessarily value or honor anymore. Uh, I love that, especially with like the farm on the side of the mountain. I just went to the sort of like farming nature symposium last week, because I'm trying to live more sustainably. Um, and a lot of it is taken from indigenous culture. And they talked about it at 
this symposium. It's this older white guy who lives in about an hour from here in Austin. Um, and he was saying he did a lot of work with indigenous folks of learning and just sitting and listening to what they were telling him. Right. And he was like, there are folks who have been farming on this land way before I got here and there'll be folks way after me. He goes, but I wanted to hear from them how to have they have how they have used this land as it's changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that really just like warmed my heart because I'm just like the the climate crisis is real right now. And so hearing all these people get so creative and how they're starting to farm, but then also hearing that it's been around for a while. If this guy is doing it in the side of the mountain and it's working already, right? So yeah, he was part of their um, school called Kusi Um, It's an indigenous-run school in Pisac, and they teach them since children. Well, they bring all kinds of representations in of weaving and culture and everything. But there's a farm that's part of the project of the school. And so what's fantastic about he uses ashes and he uses local plants as, as of natural pesticides. Um, and so he doesn't use any chemicals at all. And I have to say, it's probably the best lettuce I've ever had. In my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's also a big part too. Like you're saying is what we need is already around us. And, you know, like I said, having sat at that sort of farmer symposium last week and there's another farmer there who said that of like he doesn't use any pesticides that aren't natural and you will just see like there'll be other farms around him that just have no butterflies and no flowers but on his it's like acres and acres of flowers and he's like because I don't use a pesticide that is not organic or not natural so yeah I think I think it's a lot of us are trying to get back to quote unquote, like simpler ways. And I feel like a lot of that is tapped into these conversations we're having with indigenous and native folks, especially during this month, as we start to prepare for the holiday seasons and really questioning like where our food comes from, I think is a huge question um, that I know I've been asking myself. I feel like I don't, I haven't found my green thumb yet, um, but my grandfather, rest his soul, was such a good gardener and good farmer. I'm like, okay, it has to be in there <laughs> genetically somewhere. Um, <laughs> so like really trying to tap back into that for myself. So this is like really inspiring me to like, actually, I, I have five houseplants I haven't killed yet. So I feel like. <laughs> well, I'm not sure where you are in Austin, but these girls are pretty brutal in trying. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I live, I live in central Austin. So I, I live, I live in an apartment. So I'd have to like get really creative about my garden, but I'm, I'm intrigued about learning about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another sort of conversation, and I don't know if you can speak to this, but I'm very, I'm a big nerd about politics. And recently we've been having this conversation about critical race theory in the U.S., about whether or not we should teach it. And I think it's most often looked from the sort of realm of Black history in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sitting and having this conversation with you, it didn't even occur to me that we should also be having critical race conversations about every sort of group that is not non-white that lives in this country, like the indigenous and native, indigenous and native folks, but it also taps into you know, Hispanic history here and Asian history here, because there's just a steep history in the U.S. of different things that have happened. So I guess one of my questions or my question I'm trying to ask is, how do you think we are 
keeping indigenous folks from that sort of realm of conversation. I think it's, for me, it feels like an erasure and I feel really bad about that. Like the fact that that didn't even occur to me and I try to be so aware of other people, but yeah, that just, that really just popped into my head right now too. Like there's just, there's also all these other groups of people who I feel like will be affected as well. Yeah. I mean, so I, I I teach um, a couple of courses about critical race theory Mm. Um, so actually, so one course is social foundations of education. Um, and we're taking, um, different perspectives of critical race theory methodologically and, and from the law perspective and then from the education perspective. And then I have another class that's critical controversies. And so the students are writing about the, the different perspectives of critical race theory so that they can understand, um, a little bit better what the conversations are and be able to speak more um, authoritatively about it. Um, so I think, you know, one of the biggest misunderstandings about critical race theory is that the, it teaches people to be racist or that it teaches people that they are racist. Um, and I think a lot of people don't really even understand that it comes from a practice of law. So Derek Bell had started it um to look at the legal system and look at the inequities in the in the legal system um so the way that it's been politicized is a little is a little scary and disconcerting um i think we're in a really tough place and my students who are educators um are not even allowed to use the term oh, wow um not even allowed they told me they weren't allowed. so I, one of my assignments was that they were supposed to interview people about it um so that they could get where people are getting their information and they're not even allowed to talk about it in schools. And when we get to a place when we can't talk about things, we're headed in a really dangerous mm-hmm. zone. Um, so, so I think, you know, it's really important to understand that critical race theory is, is that it's a theory. It's one way, just like transformative praxis, just like cultural theory and media studies, any of them are frameworks to allow us to see the world differently and to gain different perspectives on how people see the world so that we can communicate better. Um, So in terms of of indigenous studies, there's tribal crit, which Brian Brayboy started. And so it allows uh, indigenous people to talk about the critical theory aspects of their history that is different than critical race theory. So where tribal Crit is really saying that we're indigenous sovereign people. We aren't, we are of this land. So when when you're talking about critical race theory, we're talking about people who have come here as, as, you know, foreigners, as slaves, as, you know, um, as an unwanted migration, right? And so tribal crit helps to give a different kind of framework for, for indigenous peoples to talk about, about that. Um, and there's more and more scholarship uh, around um, indigenous methodologies that's helping us look at the ways in which we try to, um, I don't want to say anti- anti-academic, but not necessarily provide all of the information to, to academia. Um, so Sandy Grande is one of the ones um, she wrote critical, um, I'm sorry, read pedagogy, and she talks a lot about pushing back on critical theories and critical race theory, not necessarily in her book. She doesn't talk to that specifically, but she talks about critical pedagogy and the importance that that comes from a Western canon. And so where and how do we as indigenous people get back to 
not me per se, but she <laughs> saying we as indigenous people get back to this or or make visible and make um, bring to the forefront these these protocols of ceremony um, and and communal uh, values that that may be better representations of who they are. Mm. Okay. I'm not as nervous now that like really helps me. Cause I just feel like so many, like you're saying so many people are just sort of prohibiting the conversation from either from even happening. Like we're not even allowed to say the words critical race theory and academia and, you know, is an education the place where we're supposed to fight and like have conversations and, you know, be able to discuss these things. So yeah, yeah to know that yeah. it is happening in some way, shape or form makes me less <laughs> stressed in a weird way. Um, because like you're saying, it's just a theory and, and yeah, I've just been having a lot of feelings about that. That's going to be a whole episode soon. She said, <laughs> she said nervously because there's a person who wants to have the conversation with me who is against critical race theory. And yeah. So it's, mm-hmm, it's going to yeah. be, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think anytime, you know, you confront, um, you confront issues of power and make, um, and expose what who has power and how that power gets distributed to inhibit certain people from succeeding and others from not then um yeah then then it 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 sort of awakens this nervousness right so you might be you, you just said i'm not nervous anymore but then there's also this other nervousness of people who have been able to you know sort of benefit from that for mm-hmm. for a very long time and so it's a way for us to, you know, think about how do we create a better world, right? <clears throat> so how do we do we not only just provide tools? So for unlocking silent histories, for example, it's it's yeah, a lot of these tools. So we use cri- critical um, media literacy in the beginning to talk about um, how representation is out there. And that inspires them to say, no, I want to tell my story my way, right? And Mm -hmm. so, but the story to look at media critically means that those tools come from the Western canon. So it's not only critiquing the media, but it's critiquing the tools Mm -hmm. used to critique the media. And so that gets back to the question of representation is, you know, how then do you tell a story in your own storytelling style from your own community without it being judged by a Western lens to say, that's not how you tell a story. Mm. <clears throat> so one of the kids in Guatemala, he's, his story, if we, his original one, um, he was studying alcoholism in the community and it was written in a circular fashion. But in the Quiche community, when you listen to them, they talk in circular fashions. Mm. And so then in comes another person that says, no, we have to have an introduction, a beginning and an end. And so, so, you know, we need to give that freedom to what does, what does indigenous storytelling look like um, that also helps to push these conversations of, of centering other voices um, and other ways of thinking. Yeah. I mean, my background is in social work, but then also nonprofit fundraising. And so I love storytelling. It's like one of my favorite things to do. And then I also have the honor and privilege of coming from a family that is was very involved in 
the civil rights movements. And, you know, I started marching when I was like five years old. So I've been taught how to tell my story and share my story. And it's been one of the biggest joys of my life. And, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to start this show was to have conversations, but then also give people a space to tell their own stories um, and help helping people find value in it too. Right. Cause that's like the big part of representation too, is like, if you don't already see it, it's kind of this catch 22 of like, well, if I don't already see it, maybe there's not a need for it, but also maybe I'm the one that will cause that sort of ripple effect to start it. And so I love this idea of like, you are starting with these youth and young adults to start telling their own stories and giving them the power to really be like, this is my story and I have every right to tell it in whatever way I want. Cause I would love to see what storytelling in a sort of like circular motion would look like versus just beginning to end sort of that Western way of, of storytelling and instead being able to kind of follow along in like a more interesting way for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The kids. Yeah. What was that? I said, oh, the kids. I just. Oh, there. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's just, just nothing better than working with youth. There's Truly. just nothing better than, you know, I mean, and when you see them come alive from for being able to have this agency, for being able to have this space. Because as we know, you know, education is so damaging Mm -hmm. um, and it's historically damaging. And a lot of us don't even, we're not even conscious of it. We don't even realize it. We just say, oh no, you know, this is the way that we have to do education. The teacher mm-hmm. stands here and the students are here, right? And so, and, and, and walk in a line and cut your hair and wear certain clothes and, you know. So, so these things have been damaging to people who are still living, well, they've been damaging to a lot of people, but, but particularly for students who, who live in two different worlds, right? So they're at home getting particular messages and then, they're at school and they're told all of those messages are, are wrong mm-hmm. and they're invalid and they're bad. And so you live in some space in between and you have this pressure to think that you're, you somehow don't contribute to the world. You don't belong in this world. You, you know, what, whatever it is that um, your history is, 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 you know, bad part of something terrible. And so when they're, when they can say, oh, we can do this. Oh, we can talk about this. Oh, I can celebrate this. And then when they get on stage and when they talk to the audience and I'm, I'm way in the back in the corner, <laughs> they're the ones talking about and giving value to their, their stories and their histories. And this transformation is, is just incredible to watch. Um, and it's incredible to watch the audience too, because in their they're hearing and seeing things differently um, than if they would just watch on a screen because they're actually being able to talk to the kids. So, yeah. So is that what happens after like all of their sort of documentaries are done? Y'all have like a viewing party for them? <laughs> so to speak. So basically, you know, pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, the, so so the, the program is education, technology and leadership. And so the ed and tech are really intertwined. And so is the leadership because they have to pick their stories and then mm-hmm. they have to self-direct and all of those kinds of things. But so we do three cuts. So the first cut, they do a peer review. The second cut, they'll oh. do a community review. 
And so people who are in the movies or elders in the community will come in and give, give um, recommendations for improvements. And then they'll do the final cut. And then the final cut goes to a larger audience. Um, that's not, not only um, the indigenous audience, but it includes Green Ghost too. <laughs> I love that. How cool is that? Like, sorry, I could geek out about this sort of thing. I just, I think often so much of like, if you just give a kid the space to do a thing, you are just setting them up for like so much success, like giving them the tools and the encouragement to just be themselves. I'm like, oh, oh I can talk about that all day. But um, I wanted to know, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything else you want me to ask? Because we're coming to the end. I want to make sure we get to all the things. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a it's kind of an interesting um question so when we were we were invited we were invited to the smithsonian in 2016 and the kids from guatemala got to come and present their stories um so they presented films that they made in films that they were teaching other kids and and the film curators she said to me how do you get them to do cultural films because my kids all want to do zombies and i don't don't know i think i think that was uh that was kind of an interesting question too, because never, never was there, you know, some kids wanted to do sort of dramatizations of things, but they mm-hmm. all wanted to reconnect with their cultures and their histories. So, so that was fun. Um, and it was a huge win to put Maya youth on a stage at the Smithsonian to talk about Maya culture mm-hmm. without having foreigners in the way. So. Well, what a joy. Uh, well, I thank you so much for chatting with me today. I will be sure to put everything in the show notes, um, links to the website where people can find more information. Um, but before we go, I always like to ask a sort of final palate cleanser question. Um, and it's a two parts. So you can get to pick which, which one you want to answer. But the question is, what is the best advice you were ever given? Or what is a piece of advice you would give to your younger self? Um, oh, I can only answer one, huh? <laughs> you, can, you know, you can answer both. Well, you can answer no. both today. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I think really the best advice comes from, from the kids is enter communities with respect first, hmm. listening second. Um, and the younger self of me, what I would say is, is don't listen to the noise just stay focused. I heard recently someone said, go slow to where you want to be, not to where you want to go, but to where you want to be. And just believe in what you're doing because it's, it's, it's grounded in, it's grounded in, in all of the voices that surround you that are, are leading you to the right direction. I love that. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbrie at gmail.com and visit the website, theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I'll talk to y'all next week. Bye.